If you'll just allow me, I'm going to open in a word of prayer. And then let's look at the scriptures together and see what God has to reveal to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessedness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that we can be called your son and your daughter because of what you had done for us on the cross. I pray now that as we look at your word, you, by your grace and through the power of your spirit, will open our eyes to see, will open our ears to hear, and will soften our hearts to respond to the convictions and to the change you desire to bring within us as your church. So I commit this time to you now and ask that you will speak boldly through me for your glory, for the edifying of your saints, and that you might draw us closer to yourself. May you be exalted this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. For a lot of you who already know, I work at a high school. And I've noticed in this high school, I've actually been there now for the last 14 years, in this high school where I have observed children growing up from year 7 all the way through to year 12, and even afterwards seen some of them in their university years and had the blessing to attend some of their weddings. What I find interesting in high school is that there's usually connected with their growth uh, an insecurity as they struggle with their identity, as they seek to go on this journey of self-discovery and break away from being known as such and such's daughter or so-and-so's sibling. In the process of that self-discovery, there can be some forsaking of values and standards that actually helped equip them in the first place to bring them to this point of going on this discovery journey. And, and thus, when they lose those foundational values or that foundational framework from which they began this journey, it can often lead to, not necessarily, but it can often lead to frustration and then resulting in despair because there's nothing that keeps them tied to the foundations in which they first built their lives on. Now the reason I start with that is because in the 21st century I've noticed a similar identity crisis that seems to be taking place within the church. Globally, not, you know, I mean not all churches, not all local bodies, but but it seems that the church no longer knows what it is or what it's supposed to be. There are many people, Christian and non-Christian alike, who have a limited idea regarding what church is and what the church is supposed to represent. And with what limited knowledge they do have, the question has to be raised, does what they have actually align itself with what the Lord Jesus had originally intended the church to be? Does it actually fit the standard that he has established? So for the next maybe couple of weeks, we're going to look at a couple of important truths regarding the church so that we can, one, clearly understand who we are as the church and two, know what we as the church are supposed to be about. And before we get into that, firstly, we have to lay down some context that is important to inform you that this word church, uh, the word that it comes from, ecclesia or ecclesia, which I may actually use interchangeably throughout the sermon, so I apologize if that is confusing. 
But that's ecclesia is where we get our English word church from, and that word can literally be translated as an assembly. Now, it wasn't necessarily connected to a religious gathering. It was actually quite a common word used in Greece and as a part of the Greek language. For example, in describing a gathering of people with a shared purpose in the 5th century, I think it was Herodias and Euripides. I, I can never pronounce the guy's name properly. Uh, they actually wrote, the term ecclesia was clearly characterized as a political phenomenon. It was the assembly of full citizens functionally rooted in Greek democracy, in which fundamentally political and judicial decisions were taken. See, regardless of the specific definition here, that is political, my interest in this word ecclesia is not in the fact that there was a gathering, but rather there was a gathering for a specific purpose. A couple of specific purposes I can think of. Well, actually, it was the first two examples that popped into my head regarding a gathering for a specific purpose. I'll take you back to September 10th, 2011, we as a church had the opportunity to gather, to have an assembly, to have an ecclesia and celebrate the creating of a marriage, a marriage covenant between our brother Jonathan Hui and our sister Caris Liu. It was one of the most anticipated events to take place in the 2000s. And we finally got to see the culmination of that in 2000. And, 11, and where they, before God, entered that covenant with the ecclesia, the assembly gathered there as witnesses, and before God himself. It was a wonderful day, which I was not a part of. Why? Because they didn't like me. No, they, they do like I hope they like me. No, no, no. I, I, I was at an ecclesia of another sort. My wife, my beautiful wife, who for my 40th birthday surprised me with tickets to the Rugby World Cup opening ceremony and the first game between New Zealand All Blacks and Tonga. And so I was on September 10th, 2011, there for the first game as they began their campaign to win their second World Cup, which they did. Now, once again, there was a gathering, there was an ecclesia of a shared purpose. It was the shared and return in the sense of people from all creeds and all colors of all nations, of all languages, from South Africa and Argentina and England and Australia and New Zealand and Tonga and Samoa and a number of countries all brought together to celebrate a great opening ceremony and a great rugby, well, a great rugby World Cup. Now, that was an ecclesia of sorts as well, considering that in New Zealand, rugby is pretty much a religion too. But what sets the biblical church apart, the Christian church apart from any political gathering, any wedding, or sorry, any rugby festival or any wedding that I did not attend, is the extreme links that the Lord Jesus had gone to, to one, establish his ecclesia, to sanctify or set apart his ecclesia, to protect his ecclesia, and to preserve his ecclesia, as well as the specific place that the ecclesia, that the church, that the assembly has 
to him. So before we get into these points, because we're going to look at maybe 10 points over the next couple of weeks, before we get into these points, I thought it was important that we establish a couple of important but very basic truths regarding the church. Truth number one, the church, the ecclesia, is you. The church is you. At the beginning of the shutdown and we were prevented from meeting together physically, the encouragement that went forth from people within the church, from people outside of the church, and a lot of brothers and sisters globally that went forth to remind us what the church is open, the church building is closed. The church is open, the church building is closed. And it reiterated, reiterated the fact that Ecclesia, the church, the assembly, refers to an assembly of people, not to a building and not to a location. The word refers to the fact that it is people together, for it is the people who are the church. God is interested in people. He came to the world to save souls, not to save buildings and not to save locations. We see this point coming across when Jesus encounters the woman from Samaria in John chapter 4. The woman, at, he, the woman says to him, the woman says to him, sir, I can see that you are a prophet in John chapter 4 verses 19 to 21. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped in this mountain, but you Jews claimed that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. For the Samaritans, for the Samaritans, the mountain was where they would, would worship, where they would pray and where they would offer sacrifices. To the Jews, the temple in Jerusalem was where they could pray, where they could worship and where they would offer sacrifices. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I am told that it is my body that is now his temple, the place within whom he dwells, that I am the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 says this, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. We are the temple of the living God, which means then I can worship in spirit and in truth, not based upon a building or on a location. I can pray being anxious for nothing. In Philippians 4, 6, not based upon a temple or a building or a geographical location and I can present my body as a living sacrifice Romans 12 1 not once again because of a building or because a geographical location that is the uniqueness of this gathering or the uniqueness of the church is that we as individuals are all granted this honor and privilege to meet and fellowship with the Lord Jesus ourselves. But we are never called to remain by ourselves in that privilege. 
I do know I have heard people say, well, I don't need to go to church because I have this with these. I, I, I'm, it's just me and God. It's just, it's, it's just us. It's just us. Me and him. We, we, we walk together. I'm, I'm a lone wolf or whatever it might be. Well, you're not. Because God has not called us to be that. Nowhere within the scriptures are we called to be by ourselves. Nowhere in the scriptures are we called to stand alone unless we're the only ones standing for the things of God and everybody else has gone apostate. This is why within the scriptures we are commanded in Hebrews 10.25 that we are not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. As some are in the habit of doing. That's, that's a really important point here. We can get into the habit of wanting to be by ourselves for whatever reason. Now, it's not because of persecution, because in Australia we are a great country. We're able to express freely, even though restrictions are coming around. We still have the opportunity to gather when we can and enjoy the fellowship of the saints. But some are in the habit of doing of, can't be bothered, too tired. Can't be bothered, I went last week. Can't be bothered, I went to prayer meeting. Can't be bothered, I had my Bible study. Can't be bothered, I'll do it by myself. No, 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 no. We don't want to get into that habit. And that's why he says, don't give up meeting together. Don't give that up. As the habit, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. That is the privilege that is granted to us to be able to gather together and worship as the family, as the church, as the ecclesia, as the body of Christ. Now, granted, due to the circumstances that we're, we're facing at the moment and that we are limited in doing this physically, but it doesn't make the command any less relevant to you or I. It doesn't. Considering the amount of avenues that we have made available to us where we can be in contact with each other. There's no excuse. There's no excuse that we, that we can't give somebody a phone call. There's no excuse that we can't send somebody a text. There's no excuse that we can't send somebody a card or a little something to know that we're, let them know that we're praying for them, to let them know that, that they're on our minds. There's no excuse. There are so many avenues being made available to us where we can still meet up, which, may, which means that this, this command is impossible for us not to obey. It is impossible for us not to obey. And so that's what, the church is you, and we have the blessing of being a church, being an ecclesia together. And may we, as Hebrews 10.25 says, that we would encourage each other even more as we see the day approaching. So that's the first point. The church is you. Second point. The church, the, uh, the ecclesia, is unique. The church is unique. This is a picture of my family. This is them in 2020 when we were there for my dad's farewell. Now, with the exception of my sister, who's a lot shorter and a lot fairer, and with the fact that she is a female, it would be, I think, pretty accurate to say that we are all pretty similar. We all have similar senses of humor, very sarcastic. We all have similar laughs. We all have similar sort of mannerisms, we all have similar ways of talking. We all have similar outgoing personalities. But for all our similarities, it is the fundamental differences that adds to our chemistry and to our harmony as a family. And it also distinguishes us from one family member to another. As you can see, I'm the one 
with the perfect shiny head. You have, though, various things. In, in my family, I will always be known as, and it's really funny being back there and, and even communicating with my brothers and sister now. For some reason, well, it's not for some reason, it's obvious, really. Uh, I will always be known within my family as the black one and as what's-his-name, which I think is it's really quite cool. Stories behind that, one's obvious, obviously. But anyway, now, the reason why I share this with you is that there are innumerable belief systems in the world today, and many people would like to go around and say all religions are the same. They all teach the same thing. They all have similar things that identify them as being all pretty much just the same thing. They all have, this place, they all have their places of worship. They all have their sacred scriptures. They all have their deities. They all have their religious festivals. They all have their moral codes. And so they have, they have their various holy days, whatever it might be. But much like my family and the uniqueness that we have and our differences, I can safely say that at best, all religions, or even, even just not all religions, all belief systems in the world, at best are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. It's in their foundational, their fundamental differences that's important and needs to be taken note of. They are, they are fundamentally different in life and how life came to be. They're fundamentally different in purpose and what life is supposed to be all about. They're fundamentally different about their moral standard and where the moral standards are drawn from. They're fundamentally different about your destination and where you're going to end up in, after this life ends. They are fundamentally different. And one of, the, one of the differences, one of the fundamental differences that is the view of the people, is the view of the assembly, is the view of the ecclesia or the ecclesia of the people. Because in Christianity, in, in the person of Christ, we as the church are viewed, viewed in a very unique way. I think this unique way that we are viewed also shows how much we are valued, which is very exciting. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. And I'm going to, I, I grabbed the whole thing. This is scratching the surface. But in Romans 9, verses 23 and 25, the church is referred to as my loved one. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and Colossians 1, 24, we're referred to as his, Christ's body. We are referred to as the body of Christ in Romans 7, 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 12, 27, and Ephesians 4, 12. We refer to as a chosen generation in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, as well as a royal priesthood, as well as a holy nation, as well as a people belonging to God. We refer to as the children of God in Romans 8, 17, as the glorious church in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. We refer to as my Christ's church. In Matthew 16, 18, we are referred to as the Church of Christ. In Romans 16, 16, we refer to as the Church of God. In Acts 20, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 10, 32, and 2 Corinthians 1, 1. We refer to as the flock of God, 1 Peter 5, 2. The household of faith, Galatians 6, 10. The household of God, 1 Timothy 3, 15. His household, Matthew 10, 25, and as his bride, his wife. In Ephesians 5, verse 12. Each reference here, as well as the references and the numerous titles I didn't mention, point to something which, to me, excites my heart. Which, to me, sort of stirs me because it shows the relationship that the Lord Jesus has 
toward us. It shows the value that we have to him. Not because we're valuable. No, not because we're valuable, but because he is great and loving. That's it. And we're going to look at that a little bit later on. But when you look as a beloved one, as a beloved one, it points to the fact that I am the recipient of his eternal love. In Romans 9, verses 23 to 25, it says, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even to us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Verse 25, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. The eternal love we are the recipients of now is, is absolutely amazing. As his ecclesia, as his church, as a part of his body, I am linked with him who is the head of the church. And because I'm linked to him as the head of the church, I am privy to his heart. That my heart has the opportunity to beat in time with his because I have been given his, the mind of Christ in the scriptures. That I'm a chosen generation points to the fact that I am favored. In 1 Peter 2.9, that I am favored by God. That's what that word chosen means, that I am favored. As a part of his flock states that I am under his protection and has his and of his provision, for he is my good shepherd. In John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, we read how the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. As a part of his household, I have a place where I belong and can call home. And 1 Peter, sorry, in 1 Timothy 3:15, we read, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And as a part of his bride, I am the receiver of the greatest of gifts, the sacrificial, the agape, the benevolent love of Jesus that he purchased. He purchased my salvation in the expression of his love. That, that, shows, that shows his involvement with me, his view of me. And the reason why I go through all of this, the reason why I, I need to emphasize that this common misconception of the church that many have today is that church, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly of God's people is not a social club. Although there is socializing that takes place. That the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, is not a behavior modification program. Although there is transformation that can take place once someone comes into submission to who Jesus Christ is. And that, that the church, the ecclesia, is not a life improvement facility. Although I can guarantee you this, that when you submit to the will of God and who he is and his desire and his design for life, then you experience life the way it's meant to be lived. Life in its abundance. The church is unique in the fact that it is a place full of imperfect sinners that were in need of mercy and cried out to God for help. And God responded by being born of a virgin, living in complete obedience to his Father's will, and remained sinless while doing so. And then in his living, as well as in his dying on the cross, 
he not only made a way for my sin to be forgiven and my penalty for my sin, sorry, and the penalty of my sin paid for, but in his resurrection, he has given me life. And in that life, he has placed me in an ecclesia, in an assembly, in a church, in a body, in a household to which I now belong. A body that I'm a part of, a household to which I am destined, and a generation which is in Christ favored by God. That's what makes the Ecclesia so unique. For many people today, church has become outdated and irrelevant partly because people have a misconception of what the biblical church is supposed to be. Their focus has been on the social or on the behavioral or on the, on the life improvement aspects. But as the late Ravi Zacharias stated, God did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. God did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. The church is made up of people who are once dead in their trespasses and sins and have been made alive through faith in Jesus Christ. So with those two points, that you are the church and that the church is unique, we want to leave you with this one thought as we prepare for this specific series on the church in the next few weeks. The church is the most precious assembly on earth since the Lord Jesus purchased it with his own blood. The church is the most precious assembly on earth since the Lord Jesus purchased it with his own blood. The fact that something is only as valuable as what somebody is willing to pay, because we feel robbed when we pay good money and get a faulty product in return. We kick up a stink over this. The verse in 1 Peter speaks to the fact that the Lord Jesus shed his blood, his precious, his pure, his guiltless, his innocent blood to atone for my vile, selfish, sinful offenses. That I am tainted by sin and for no other reason than his love for me and his love for you, he sacrificed himself in order to buy my freedom, in order to purchase us from the slave market of sin. If you read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, reread this. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so, and so your faith and hope are in God. This doesn't show me how special I am. This shows me how great he is. You see, this doesn't show me how valuable I am. It shows me the greatness of his love. That's what that shows me. It shows me that 
in all my weakness, in all my failings, in all my sinfulness, He still loved me. And He paid the greatest of prices in the giving of His life in order to set me free from my sin, from my sinful nature, my defiant nature, my selfish nature. You see, Christmas, Christmas is about God's passionate pursuit of you. When I was at... uh, Kairos. So I was, I was at the, the, the prison and I was sharing a, a Christmas message about the passionate pursuit. And I asked the guys, the residents there, and I says to them, how many of you have been chased? And all of them said, all of them said yeah, by cops, by cops. We didn't do very well because we we're all caught. So I asked them again, how many of you were chased by love? And to which some of them, oh. And I said, well, because this is what Christmas is about. It is about how God himself chased you with love to show how much he loves you and to win your heart with that love. That we, as mentioned before, being dead in our trespasses and sins and really having no desire to have anything to do with God and because of that we're destined to an eternity of condemnation and separation from God in hell because sin can't be in his holy presence. His love underwent a mission to break the chains of sin that sealed my eternal fate away from him. That's what Christmas is about. Easter is about the price that he is willing to pay in order to purchase my freedom from the slave market of my own sinfulness. Now, you might sit there and say to yourself, well, what do you mean, Joe, free? I'm a free man. I'm an independent woman. What do you mean? What you may not know about yourself is that according to the Bible, from the day you were born, you and I were in a natural state, captive to our sinful nature. Not our sin action, to our sinful nature. And you know yourself. You know what you're like. I know what I'm like. You know the selfishness of your own heart. You know the manipulations of your own mind. You know the envies of your own desire. You know the greed of your own appetites. And you'll notice that these may not necessarily be acted out literally, but inwardly it makes you just as guilty before God because it is part of our beings. I remember when a young fellow at the school says to me, I think it's very unfair of God to judge us based upon our thoughts. I think it's very unfair of God to do something like that if we never actually act on it. Well, the reality is, and I, I says to him, and I got this from Tim Hawkins, actually, he says, uh, you're, not condemned. you're not condemned for those things. You're condemned for not keeping the two greatest commandments. That's what condemns you. I said, well, what do you mean? I says, well, we're condemned over not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and not loving others as yourself. That's what condemns us. And that, that is evident by the fact of what we think, that we're not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're not loving others as ourselves. Because if, even if we think it shows our heart attitude towards Him, shows our sinful nature. And that our sinful nature, well, there's a consequence to that. There's a payment for that. There's a wage, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. 
the consequence of sin is death, and death is all about separation. If we die physically, I'm separated from everybody else. And being dead spiritually means I'm separated from God. It is a spiritual death, and it's a spiritual separation that takes place to eternity unless, unless that chasm, that gap is taken care of. And that is what is done through Jesus. That in all his righteousness and all his perfection and all his purity paid that penalty for me. And that in his sacrifice, he satisfied the requirements of God's holiness for sin and provided a means whereby sinful man can be reconciled with the holy God. He purchased that freedom from sin's penalty. He purchased and liberated my, my, sorry, my liberty from sin's power, and ultimately I'll be delivered from sin's, sin's presence, all because he shed his blood on the cross and died for me and rose again. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good person, some might possibly dare to die. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How can one not be moved by such a love as this? That we, as the church, are the most precious assembly on earth since the Lord Jesus purchased us with his own blood. Once again, not because we are valuable, not because we are worthy of it, but because he loves us. That's it. He views us as his body, as his church, as his household, as his bride and being viewed in such a way we have the love and the protection and the preservation and the provision and the safety and the security that can only be found because Jesus Christ views us in that way. That is the grace of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ that we get to be the recipients of. I pray that you will be encouraged today. And as we look at the church, we will continue to grow in our understanding of who we are so that we might know what we are to be about. Let's pray and then we will carry on with our mornings. Father, we thank you so much that you love us and that you view us in such an amazing way. Thank you so much that we are the church. That is not limited to location, that is not limited to a building, but that we are your ecclesia. We are your people. We are your assembly. And I pray that as unique as, as who we are and as unique as unique you have made us, I pray that you will help us to walk in that uniqueness, not because we are special, but because you are great. So Father, help us to appreciate that and help us to be about what you have called us to be doing. And help us to live in the power of your spirit as we seek to honour you 
and glorify you in the life that you entrusted us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.